please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The book of Isaiah and the 42nd chapter is where we'll start. Even though we'll spend the majority of our time in in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. With Pastor Pat having just begun a study of the Old Testament on Sunday evenings, I thought this morning would be a perfect time to dig into what I believe is the greatest prophetic book of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Pay particular attention as I read the description of God's servant in chapter 42 and what God says at the very end of this section through his prophet, Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice." He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. The sovereign and almighty God is declaring the work of his servant, the one he has chosen, the one in whom he delights, And he concludes by proclaiming new things that are going to happen in the future. The reason God can proclaim what is going to happen in the future is because he has planned it and he will bring it to pass. God has made promises in the scriptures regarding the future. And we know he'll keep those promises because he is almighty God. In our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 22 we saw a vivid and prophetic description of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was written over 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Christ. The Apostle Peter tells us in Acts 2, verse 23, that Jesus, in suffering this death, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God had planned it, And he brought it to pass. Why? Why did God put his only begotten son, his unique son, the son of God, who was with God the Father from eternity past, why did God do that? And what did it accomplish? We will see in Isaiah, in the Old Testament this morning, why God did that. And how God is advancing his plan 
and is keeping his promises through it. Isaiah the prophet was raised up by God to speak of the coming judgment of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, because of her many sins, and to reveal the coming of the servant of the Lord. Through Isaiah, God offered the nation as a whole the opportunity to repent and avoid national calamity and national judgment. Isaiah was calling the people of Judah back to a proper relationship with God. He was reminding his generation of the sinful condition in which they were living and the judgment God would bring upon them if they did not turn from their sin. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is given over to pronouncing judgment on immoral and idolatrous people, beginning with Judah, then the nations surrounding Judah, and finally the whole world. Judgment is coming, and sin ultimately leads to punishment, is the message in the first half of Isaiah. Yet the last 27 chapters of the book demonstrate the Lord's grace, the Lord's compassion, and the Lord's glory. So much so that Isaiah 40 to 66 has been called the Old Testament book of Romans. Chapter 40 begins with the predicted voice of John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, just as each of the Gospels do. The end of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66, climax with the same picture as that described by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. That is the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Sandwiched in the center of these sections are four servant passages. And most specifically, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. In this last half of the book, Isaiah tells of the servant, the future Messiah who will come as a savior to bear the burden of sin and as a sovereign king to wear a crown of glory. Isaiah also confirmed that God would one day restore Israel to the land with full blessings in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, is perhaps the best-known section of the book of Isaiah. It is directly quoted at least nine times in the New Testament, and it is alluded to dozens more. Most of this vivid passage concerns the suffering and rejection of the servant of the Lord. But the main point in this section is that the servant's suffering will lead to his exaltation and glory. The servant will triumph, he will succeed, and he will be exalted. Before we dig into our central passage this morning, we have to look closer at the word servant. That word captures the central place in the section of Isaiah we will be studying. The singular form of the word servant is found 20 times in chapters 40 through 53 of Isaiah. The word servant is a collective term, as well as an individual one in this section of Isaiah, and that can be seen by looking at two sets of passages. First, the word servant is clearly referring to the nation Israel in 12 references. Those are found in Isaiah chapter 41, chapter 43, 44, and chapter 48. But secondly, 
The servant is just as clearly seen to be an individual in what are often called the four great servant passages in Isaiah. They are chapter 42, which we read to start out, chapter 49, chapter 50, and our central passage today in chapters 52 and 53. These four passages all present the servant as an individual who ministers to the nation Israel. As for the term servant referring to those who serve God, this is nothing new. Abraham is called God's servant in Genesis 24. Moses had referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as servants of the Lord in Exodus 9 and, I'm sorry, Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 9. All Israel was called God's servant in Leviticus 25. And King David is called God's servant in 2 Samuel 7 when God makes his promise, his covenant with David and says, Your house, that is your family, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Yet in the four passages mentioned earlier, the servant is clearly an individual and a very special individual in the eyes of God. In Isaiah 49, this servant is given a mission. Turn with me over just a few pages to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to look specifically at verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, this is God speaking, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The servant's task is to bring Israel back. It is to gather Israel to himself and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. And God will make the servant a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Did you catch that in verse 6? Till the ends of the earth. You might say, well, I thought the Old Testament was about the nation Israel. I thought the Old Testament was all about the Jews. I thought Isaiah was a Jewish prophet speaking to the Jewish people, to the nation Israel. How about that last phrase? So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Does that remind you of an earlier covenant? An earlier promise that was made before the one that I just referred to with King David? How about the promise to Abraham given in Genesis chapter 12 and reinforced in chapters 15 and 17 and many others in the book of Genesis and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament? The promise God made to Abraham in Genesis had three main aspects. The threefold promise is often referred to as land, seed, and blessing. The first promise for land or territory, God promises the land of Canaan to Abraham 
in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The second promise is seed or offspring or descendants. In Genesis 12, 2, when God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, God is promising that Abraham will have many descendants. Then the third promise. And this is the most important of the promises. It is the most prominent. It is given the priority. It is the promise that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. You see, God had promised to Abraham that he would have many descendants, enough to populate a great nation. That this great nation would inhabit a land and that one of Abraham's descendants, one of the members of this great family, living in the land God had given to Abraham, that one of Abraham's descendants, through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So you see, God is working out His plan and keeping His promises. By the unconditional promise God made to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. Likewise, through this descendant of Abraham, God is bringing a light to the nations, Isaiah tells us, a light so that God may reach to the end of the earth with His salvation. And if it reaches the end of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through it. This servant of the Lord, the individual referred to in Isaiah chapter 49, and the one referred to in Isaiah chapter 42, and the one referred to in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. He is the light to the nations to the Gentiles who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Isaiah is showing us how God is keeping his promises, how God is working out his plan, and now God, through his prophet Isaiah, is going to reveal some amazing truths about the work and the exaltation of God's servant, Jesus Christ. He is going to reveal these truths 700 years before the servant, the God-man, would come to earth as an infant to be miraculously born of a virgin who in the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God would die an agonizing death on a cross as a substitute for you and for me so that we might be cleansed from sin and have eternal life. Seven centuries before God does this amazing work, he tells his people Israel about it. Seven hundred years before he carries out his plan, he announces how he will save his people. He announces how all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let there be no doubt that this section of Isaiah, starting in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 through Isaiah 53, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The significance of the suffering of the servant of the Lord, of his substitutionary death and his exaltation, specifically refers to Jesus, who is that unique servant of the Lord. Well, with that, let's turn to our central passage, Isaiah chapter 52, and let's start in verse 13. 
Isaiah 52:13 through chapter 53 verse 12 is divided into five stanzas of three verses each. Stanza 1, I've labeled the mystery of the servant. That's chapter 52 verses 13 to 15. Stanza 2, the rejection of the servant. Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3. Stanza 3, the sacrifice of the servant. That's verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. Stanza 4 is the submission of the servant. Verses 7 through 9. And stanza 5, the exaltation of the servant. That's verses 10 through 12. Well, stanza 1, the mystery of the servant. Chapter 52, verse 13. This first stanza is a summary of the 12 verses that follow it. This first stanza gives us the 30,000 foot view, the express trip through these next 12 verses. Let's read chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This threefold exaltation, he will be high, he will be lifted up, he will be exalted is an emphatic statement. It points to the fact that this servant, in the end, will be exalted by God. He will be held up. He will rule and reign. And while that exaltation will come, Shame and deep suffering will precede it. That is what is pictured in verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. His appearance is so disfigured, he is marred almost beyond human likeness. In verse 14, we have the horror of suffering and punishment depicted And then we have a huge contrast between verse 14 and verse 15. Because in verse 15 we are told, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. When when verse 15 says that he will sprinkle many nations... That sprinkling is a reference back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The sacrifices involved the blood of animals, of goats and bulls, being sprinkled on various altars and various items that the Israelites wanted cleansed. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as a way to appeal to God to forgiveness of sins for the nation. This servant, somehow through his suffering, will sprinkle not just the nation Israel, but he will sprinkle many nations. This sprinkling, this cleansing from sin, is not just a cleansing for Israel, although primarily they are in focus here. Very explicitly, Isaiah says, this is a sprinkling, a cleansing for many nations. 
This appearance by the servant will shut the mouths of kings. It will silence them. They will be so astonished. They will be in such awe that they will shut up. They will be quiet. They will not have a word to say. Now, clearly, verse 14 of chapter 52 is referring to Christ's first coming. Verse 15 of chapter 52 is referring to Christ's second coming. But there's more involved here, and that will be developed as we move through the rest of chapter 53. So our first stanza is a summary. And the mystery here, the mystery of the servant, and why I labeled it as such, is how do we have both the suffering, the agony, the disfigurement of the servant, and at the same time have the exaltation, the praise The servant in such a position that even kings, even rulers of nations will be silenced before him. How do we explain that contrast? How is that dichotomy going to be worked out by God? That takes us to stanza number two, the rejection of the servant in verses one through three of chapter 53. This stanza begins with two questions that lead to various reactions to the servant, all negative. The first question in verse 1, Who has believed our message? Who has heard our words? Who have heard the words about the servant? The second question, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The deeds of the Lord, His arm, a symbol of action, a symbol of doing something. The deeds of the Lord are involved in this second question. But the very fact that these questions are being asked implies that many will not believe, that many will, not, will reject the words and the deeds of this servant, this Messiah, this Jesus. And with verses 2 and 3, this process of rejection continues. Read verse 2 with me. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This servant does not burst on the scene as a charismatic figure. This servant does not come out as somebody that that everybody is drawn to. Evidently, he has no, no majestic appearance, no, no regal appearance about him, no, no charisma that makes everybody run to him. Keep in mind, the Jews of the day were looking for a king who would help them defeat their enemies. They were looking for a king who could fight against the Assyrians, the superpower of the day, and defeat them. They were looking for somebody that in our day we'd look for a handsome, rugged athlete. We'd look for a movie star. Somebody striking in appearance that we could rally around who was charismatic. But God is saying His servant, the servant, won't come in that way. He won't have any stately appearance. He won't look like a ruler. He will even be born in an insignificant place. 
like a root out of dry ground, out of parched ground. Maybe like we think of Soresco, Nebraska. I don't know. Ithaca. I hope nobody's here from either of those places. But Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth is nothing special. Just a little place on the side of the road. So the servant will come. He will come from a place such as this. So the Israelites were looking for someone they could take notice of who looked like royalty. But Isaiah tells us the servant, at least from outward appearances, is nothing special. We are at best indifferent to him. Most likely we look down upon him. But the response to God's servant gets worse in verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Notice Isaiah changes and now starts using the word we in his narrative. He is making it personal for all of us. There's four sad statements in verse 3. First of all, the servant is despised. Secondly, the servant is forsaken. Third, he is offensive to others, so much so they hide their face from him. And fourth, he is estimated to be of little or no value. We did not esteem him. So we move from being indifferent at best in verse 2 to outright rejection of God's servant in verse 3. That brings us to the third stanza, the sacrifice of the servant. Verses 4 through 6. This is the central stanza of this entire section. And a case can even be made for the entire book of Isaiah. Verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We considered Him stricken by God. You see, a terribly wrong perception happens here in verse 4. We think He, the servant, deserved the punishment he received on the cross because of what he had done. We thought he was the criminal. Instead of realizing that it was for our sin that he died, we conclude it was for his own sin that God had stricken him. But verse 5 tells us that God thinks differently. And it doesn't take the prophet Isaiah long to get to the main point. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Now, the interesting thing about verse 5 is God is the active agent here. 
In other words, God is the one who allows the scourging of the servant. Scourging is a nasty and cruel whipping of the subject that was limited to only 39 strokes because it could kill the individual if it went further. God allows the nails to pierce his hands and feet and the spear to be thrust in his side. God allows the punishment due us to be carried out on the servant. We deserve the firing squad, the electric chair, the hangman's noose. We deserve crucifixion on the cross for our sins. Not God's servant. You see, the penalty for our sin is death. Physical, spiritual, and eternal death is the penalty for sin. Ultimately, that penalty is the eternal separation from God forever. And God allows the penalty we rightly deserve to pay to be paid by a substitute. You know what a substitute is. You've seen it on the football field when somebody gets hurt. We cart the one person off and we bring the next one in. He's a substitute. We do the same thing in basketball. We need a good free throw, thrower, throw, free throw shooter. We pull out Shaq and we put in somebody else. We bring in a substitute. Somebody to take their place. That's what God is doing with the servant. God allows the penalty we deserve to pay to be paid by a substitute. God allows His servant, the Son of God, the sinless and perfect God-man Jesus Christ, to substitute for us and pay the penalty we deserve to pay. Then God unleashes His wrath upon our sin that results in the suffering and death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so doing satisfies God's righteous demand for justice. The very first part of verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. That means the spear was thrown into Him because of our sin. And He was crushed. He was killed for our sin. Now verse 6 gives us the reason and the solution for those who come to faith in Christ. It is one of the great verses in all the Bible on the substitutionary atonement of Christ and His work on the cross. This is the climax. Everything in human history leading up to the cross of Christ is doing just that. Leading up to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the central event of all human history. Everything after the cross of Christ is a result of His death on the cross. Let's move on to verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We as mankind are by nature sinners. And in addition to that, each of us as individuals has sinned. That's captured in the very first two lines of this verse. All of us like sheep has gone astray. All humanity. We are sinners together by nature. We sin. But not just that. The second line says, 
Each of us has turned to his own way. Individually, we have each sinned as well. Sinned against God and sinned against others. What's the solution? The last half of the verse. But the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The sin of us all to fall upon the servant. John MacArthur says it well in his commentary on this verse. God treated Jesus Christ as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though Jesus was personally innocent of any sin. Let's read that again. God treated Jesus Christ as if he committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though Jesus was personally innocent of any sin. Well, Jesus was forced to do this, right? He he was made to go to the cross by God the Father. He had no choice in the matter. Well, that's not what the next stanza tells us. Stanza 4, the submission of the servant. In verse 7, the servant is seen voluntarily submitting to his trial, his suffering, and his death. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Five trials are held for Jesus. He has a trial before Annas. He has a trial before the Sanhedrin. He has a trial before Pontius Pilate. He has a trial before Herod. And then the final trial, the one that brings judgment upon him and death sentence. Jesus does not protest in any one of them. And verses 8 and 9 portray Christ voluntarily submitting to his own burial and his own death. Verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. See, Jesus was put to death for the sins of of humanity, even though humanity deserved the stroke. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was crucified between two criminals, yet he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There's no doubt on those last two lines, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, that we're talking about the individual servant. For the nation Israel could not say that. The nation Israel as a whole was guilty before God. They had done violence. Deceit was in their mouth, but not in that of the servant of the Messiah. That brings us to the fifth stanza, the final one. 
the exaltation of the servant, starting in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, those first two lines of verse 10 are hard to really comprehend. Think about what it says. The Lord was pleased to crush him. That word crush means to kill. Doesn't quite fit our modern idea of an all-loving, always-kind Santa Claus kind of God. But it was the Lord's will to crush the servant. It was the Lord's will to have him suffer great pain and agony before his death and then to be crucified on the cross. Crucifixion being one of the most inhumane forms of death sentence that there is. But it is clear from Jesus' own statements, he knew God's plan. As the eternal Son of God, he knew what God the Father had in store for him when he became a baby on this earth. Listen to Luke chapter 22, verse 41 to 44, which takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Christ was crucified. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This cup referring to the crucifixion and suffering that Christ would go through, the cup of suffering and death that he would encounter the very next day. And the human side of Christ is saying, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to deal with sin, Father, can we do that? But there isn't. There isn't. Let's listen to another verse in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus is speaking. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is willing to knowingly go through this because He loves us. Because His love is so great. And He knows this is the only solution. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, indicates his resurrection from the dead. The last line of this verse points to the exaltation of the servant. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand and indicates the servant will see the plan of the Lord successfully completed. Through the servant, through Jesus Christ, the will of the Lord will prosper. That brings us to verse 11. 
as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. He will bear their sins. Verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. The exaltation of the servant who has now gone through the suffering and death in payment for the sins of the people. He will be allotted a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Why? Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The first part of verse 12 tells us that God's seal of approval, that God's reward to the servant, to Jesus Christ, is due to four reasons. Because he poured out his life unto death. Because he allowed himself to be numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with us. He identified with us as sinners. Third, because he bore the sins of many. And fourth, because he kept on making intercession for the transgressors. Even today, he sits at the right hand of God as our advocate before the Father when the devil accuses us before him. Even today, he is our intercessor. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're in this room, what does it mean to you that Jesus Christ did all this for you? That while you were a sinner, while you were an enemy of God, Christ died for you. He gave his life as your substitute. Are you living your life with that fact? And is your love for Christ at the center of your life as well? Are you showing the grace and love towards others that Christ showed towards you? Are you doing that at home? At work? At school? It's easy to put on the show at church for an hour or two every week. How's your life going? Are you living your life in light of the fact that the sovereign God who has a plan and is bringing that plan to pass in this world is in control of everything? When trials, temptations, and hard times come, and they will, do you rest in the fact that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him? If God is for us, believer, who is against us? If you're here today and have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do so today. We are all sinners. We have all sinned against God. The penalty for sin is death. Physical, spiritual, and ultimately eternal death. Eternal separation from God. You have two choices. You can choose to pay the penalty yourself. It's a very harsh and eternal one. Or you can, by believing in Christ, by faith in Him, through the free gift of His grace, accept Him as your personal Savior and your substitute. And He will pay the penalty you deserve to pay. Now, the cost is not cheap. It costs the life of the Son of God. 
And Christ demands you put Him first above all else. He demands that you love Him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. He urges us to count the cost before becoming His follower, His disciple. You can, however, believe in Him today. John 3.16 is one of the most famous passages in all the Scripture. And what does it say you have to do to be saved? Notice as we've gone through Isaiah 53, how much of it did we have to do? There wasn't one line in there about what we did, other than rejected God, wanted to do things our way, rebel against Him. See, Christ has done it all. He just asks that we submit to Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In summary, God has a plan for this world, and He is bringing it to pass. He has made promises to Israel that are yet to reach their final fulfillment. But make no mistake, God has a plan, and He is bringing it to pass. 700 years before the next step in his plan took place, he was telling the nation Israel through his prophet Isaiah what would happen. Those words still ring true today. Let's pray. God and Father, we are humbled by the immense sacrifice of your Son. Father, it is hard for us to comprehend the depth of the suffering, the depth of the agony and the pain. It's just hard for us to understand how Jesus Christ bore the sins of so many on His shoulders on that cross. But praise God, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is victorious over sin. That He is exalted to the right hand of the Father right now today in glory with God. And that He is there as our intercessor and our advocate. Father, I pray we would live our lives in light of that fact, even today and through this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.